Sam. Welcome back to uh, the world of the living. Hello. Hello. We had to take a week off, but... Because uh, I thought I was dying. Yeah. We had to hit her with the drugs about an hour before this show. Well, it did help. <laughs> thank help. you for getting COVID tested before coming over here, so we appreciate no you. Yep. Sorry, everybody, last week, um, Sam was... Sh- she came down with the crud. Uh, a big crud. I thought I could not even move. When you texted me and said, I'm not coming, I was like... You know it takes a lot to take me down. No, that's why I was really shocked when you said that. I was like, okay. Yeah. All right, we'll record next week. So we apologize to you all for uh, the delay, but we will My get... bad. It, it was worth it. It happens. It, it was happens, worth it, I promise you. We're only human. And... Uh, here we are. So before we go any further, guys, and continue on with part two of our series on Charles Manson, um, please go and subscribe to the show, share the show, spread it around like wildfire. Let's get this thing popping. We love that. Yeah. yeah. Leave If you use Apple, leave us a review. If whatever platform you're listening on lets you leave a review, please leave us a review. Yeah. I got the nebulizer treatment and I got a <laughs> box of tissues. <laughs> Well, and we I brought will. her back from the dead for this this episode. So, yeah. I was a creep in the crypt last week. <laughs> you fucking were. <laughs> All right, so let's let's continue where we left off with Charles Manson. He had just gotten out of prison, and take it away, Christian. So, following his release from prison on March twenty second, nineteen sixty seven. Charles Manson moved to San Francisco, where, with the help of a prison acquaintance he moved into an apartment in berkeley there he began making money by begging so charles manson when he was begging around uh san francisco he would go to like bars and ask him to play for tips and he'd set out a tip bucket and if nobody would tip him he'd be like look i just got out of prison and i told my two associates that uh wanted to come in and rob the place let me get a chance to make a few honest dollars and if I can't do that, there's no telling how long I can hold them off from barging in with the shotguns. Oh, my God. It's amazing okay. how effective those words were. Oh, my God. So he's just robbing bar patrons for fucking money at this point. There are, there are no associates. Are there? No. There were no associates. <laughs> he did right. get out of prison, but there are no associates. Not a one. Good. So... He met a 15-year-old panhandler who taught him the rules of hate, and Manson listened to the kids around him. They were escaping society as much as he was trying to relearn it. They caught each other brother and sister and readily gave away what they could, food, flowers, or love. Charlie told them he was just out of prison. There was no judgment. There was no shame. When they saw he had a guitar, they asked him to play it. Then they maybe tipped him a few dimes in appreciation. What a lowly little life to have to just get dimes. I guess it's like what? Well, you got to remember, it's the 60s. <coughs> like, like money like, money goes a lot further. Uh, back I guess then. if somebody threw fucking dimes at me, I'd probably throw them right back I at I mean, them. hell, they only gave him like 30 bucks when he got out of jail, so. They gave him money? Yeah, they gave him like, I think it was like 
$34. What is that, bus fare? Basically. Just, here you go. Fucking basically. What did they do? Splat, like, slap they gave him, him some secondhand clothes. Gave him $34 and slapped him on the ass and said, have yeah. a great day. Some beat up clothes and said, here you go. <laughs> Hand me down. They go went forth and be prosperous. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> or Rob. Uh, we, we certainly won't see you back in here again. Yeah, no. seriously. Not Charlie. Um, Charlie had a good first acid trip, grooving to Dark Light show at the Dead concert. Yeah, so it's the first time Charlie ever dropped acid was at a Grateful Dead concert. Appropriate place to do yeah, that. Yeah, so he, uh, he tripped out at the Grateful Dead. So continue. Charles found a girlfriend in 1967. He met Mary Bruner, a college-educated library worker near Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco, and moved into her apartment. She was taken by the way he seemed to offer alternative to her lifestyle, uh, everyday mainstream life. And Manson represented to her a life of freedom and opportunity. So Charlie... In, in his book, Manson in His Own Words, this went on for three fucking pages about the first time him and uh, Mary Bruner had sex. Three pages? Three pages of graphic eroticism. <laughs> she must have been a hell of a lady. Uh, he she said was a it, library he said, worker. They're probably the biggest fucking freaks. He said it was a beautiful courtship. So, but one of the quotes from Manson in that book is, Everybody came, said I came out of prison and started fucking all these women. But let me tell you, it was a few days before I got my balls out of hock. What the fuck? fuck is- like, basically a week. No, right. the quote that you just, balls in a hock. Balls out of hock. Balls like, out of hock. Balls out of hock. You ever heard hock. of hocking anything, like in a pawn shop? Yeah, I've heard of hocking. I've heard of hock a loogie, but I've never heard of hocking anything. Like... like all I no. think of when you're saying like hawking is like throwing, so all I'm thinking is like he's yeah. throwing some balls. You, you you hawk something at the pawn shop, and then you got to get it out. <laughs> all right, there you go. Oh my now God. y'all learned something today. I learned two new things today. There you go. I didn't want to. Manson's arrival in the hate directly conceded with the summer of love. The streets were alive with impressionable young people looking for someone to give them answers. Manson uh, developed a strategy for attracting an audience by sitting alone in a park somewhere and playing his guitar and singing. Once he had there a few interested women sitting around him, he launched into his guru act, prophesizing that the answer these women were looking for lay within him. Manson promised to lead these women to true enlightenment enlightenment, and told them this was the only possible if they renounced their possessions, their individuality, and submitted entirely to his will. No, thank you. <laughs> basically, give yourself to me and I will make it better. Basically, this whole thing was just like a way for him to fuck other girls with Mary Bruner. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So you... Yeah. <laughs> so you and me. You're my Mary Bruner. I am your Mary Bruner. God, I can go so on. Sweet. I can go on like ten pages about you, though. Aw, that's sickening and sweet. 
10 pages of graphic eroticism. Just 10? Well, yeah. I mean, I got I to gotta leave some other stuff in there, too. You know? Oh, God. Eh. Later in 1967, Reverend Dean Morehouse befriended Charlie after he had picked him up as a hitchhiker. Morehouse invited Manson to a dinner at his San Jose home, which resulted in Manson spending the night. The, the two discussed the Bible, sang religious songs, and Manson was fond of the piano that Morehouse family owned, which Dean Morehouse allowed Manson to take for himself. A week later, Charlie returned to Morehouse home and negotiated with one of the Dean's neighbors to exchange the piano for 1961 Volkswagen microbus. So he took the dude's piano as a gift and then like re-gifted it. He ended to his neighbor. <laughs> to yeah. his neighbor. So basically Could he- you imagine like walking into your neighbor's house and like see like I recognize that piano. Oh, that was my piano. So basically he um he did that TikTok trend where you start with like a small item. Yeah. And then upgrade it to see what you can keep going with. I do enjoy those. Those are usually really funny, but what he did is just kind of Charles Manson is a man out of time. He should have he should have been like Could you imagine now. on TikTok? Oh, I would oh I would God. watch it every day. Repeat. <clears throat> I would leave that shit on repeat. It would burn out my battery. Next, Manson took his guru act to Venice Beach, where he met his first true follower, not counting Mary Bruner, who was still supporting Manson financially. 18-year-old Lynette Fromm, who George Spawn gave the nickname Squeaky. Fromm dropped out of college and went to Venice Beach after her parents had thrown her out of the house. Suffering from depression, she sat on a curb and watched a bus arrive and Charlie exited. Manson stopped and looked at her and said, Your parents threw you out, didn't they? Fromm immediately decided Manson was a psychic. Manson walked away and Fromm just, uh, picked up her belongings and followed him. So, some fun facts about Squeaky Fromm. Uh, she was friends with Phil Hartman of SNL in high school. Huh. Yeah. Uh, she was known as like a very depressed kid who would like burn herself with cigarettes and hit staples into her arms like shoot staples oh into her arms. Yeah. Not a very uh, happy person to be around. No. Sounds like a great person to pick up at a bus stop. Right? Most of these people sound like people you'd pick up at a bus stop. <laughs> Lynette returned to Berkeley with Manson um, and with Mary, the new threesome moved into an apartment in San Francisco. Oh, so he found a threesome. <laughs> Mm, yes. Look, honey, look what I brought home. Yeah, I brought uh, a bus stop like person that just wants to you know, live I by found the, bus it the bus stop. stop. Yeah. Kiwi. How would you feel if I brought somebody home from the bus stop? Uh, well, given how this story ends, not very good. <laughs> Charlie brought Mary and Lynette to San Jose to visit the Morehouse residence. They planned to stay for a night or two, but two weeks later, they were still there. Charlie and Dean rapped all night about Jesus while Dean's frustrated wife grew impatient with their house guests. Audrey Morehouse finally left to visit her sister, leaving the threesome with Dean and youngest Ruth Ann. One day, Charlie and Ruth Ann left together in the VW bus. Her mother called the house several times demanding to know where her daughter was. 
When she spoke to Lynette, Audrey was told not to worry. So when Charlie and Ruthann Morehouse first had sex, she was like, but my daddy, he's like, forget your daddy. I'm your daddy now. Yeah. He like he fucked a 14 year old. He fucked a lot of 14 year olds. Uh-uh. 14, 15 year olds. He liked them young. Yeah. I mean, I can understand, like, how old is Charlie at this point? Like, 32. I can understand, like, <coughs> hunting the, like, 20-year-olds. Like, because that's in, like, your 30-year-old brain, like, hunting the 20-year-olds. But the Charlie was just good on the bush, dude. He could <sighs> he could worm-tongue his way into any situation with a chick. Mm-mm. Just go and ball for a couple of days, drop some acid with him. It was a trip, man. Meanwhile, in Mendocino County, Charlie had sex with the 14-year-old a few times before being found by police, who had been contacted by Ruth Ann's mother. Manson was arrested. Ruth Ann was sent home, but not before Charlie gave her a piece of advice. Marry some poor smuck, and you'll be emancipated. Then you can leave him and do whatever you want to do. A month or two later, Charlie, Mary, and Lynn again visit the Morehouse home. Dean ran outside, shouting at Charlie for deflowering his precious daughter. Charlie and the women jumped back in the van and tried to drive away. Three days later, Ruth Ann ran away. Dean tracked her down where Manson and the women were staying in Santa Barbara and dragged his daughter home, but not before Charlie slipped Dean a tab of acid. Old Dean was noticeably calmer when he departed than when he arrived. <laughs> yeah, he basically, like, slipped him acid. And talked to him in circles like, look, man, I'm on the trip. I'm on the God trip. You're on the God trip. We're both on the God trip. Your dad is God. I'm God. God had sex with God. And uh, just fucking just talked him around and sent him on his fucking way. Interesting. In May of 1968, Ruth Ann Morehouse would marry 23-year-old bus driver Edward Lewis Uvalhorst in an effort to become emancipated from her father, which Manson had advised her to do. According to Morehouse, the marriage only lasted one day, and she moved to Los Angeles area that Manson and his followers had relocated to months earlier. Manson attracted the attention of another woman, Patricia Krenwinkel, on Manhattan Beach in 1967. A.K.A. Big Patty. That's what they called her. They called her Big Patty, dude. Was she tall or like... You'll find out. (laughs) Patricia was often bullied at school by other students, suffered from low self-esteem, and was frequently teased for being overweight and for an excessive growth of hair caused by a adrenocrine condition. Krenwinkel later... I'm just going to call her Big Patty. That last name is just going to fuck me up. So, Big Patty said that Manson was the first person who had ever told her she was beautiful and that she had sex with him on the first night they met. Thoroughly transfixed by Manson and desperate to become one of his girls, Big Patty left her job, car, apartment, and last paycheck behind and returned with the budding family to San Francisco. Big Patty gave Manson her father's credit card and the foursome survived for a while by stealing and writing bad checks. You know, the thing that got him put in jail. So he's just when he financing his... He is pimping. He is financing his shit. Uh-huh. Oh, my God. 
Susan Sadie Atkins was the next woman to join the Manson family. Atkins was a ex-convict who was supporting herself by topless dancing. Shout out. Uh, Manson was drawn to Atkins when he learned that she had danced in a cabaret led by the self-styled leader of the Satanic Church, Anton LaVey, who hired her to be a topless female vampire in his Witch's Sabbath. Dude, I just love that, like, she gets to be Sadie and Patricia Krenwinkel has to be Big Patty. Uh, right. Like, why are you guys calling me Big Patty? It's fucking, this just trips me the fuck out. Over the next few days, Manson introduced Atkins to the other woman in his orbit. Lynette Fromm, Patricia Krenwinkel, Mary Bruner, and they had a plan to buy a bus and travel around the country. Atkins was nothing to lose and nowhere to go, eagerly agreed to come along, and she officially became part of the family. The Manson family grew while on a drug and sex-filled 18-month tour of the American West in an old school bus. Many people during this period were painting buses, bread trucks, and VW vans with psychedelic day-glow colors. Charlie and the girls chose to make a different statement with their monochrome home on wheels, tricking out a surplus school bus by painting it all black, including the windows, which made him easy to spot. Atkins was able to lure Bruce Davis to join the family in the fall of 1967, the first male member and a man who later described as Manson's right-hand man. Davis met the family when they were in Oregon. Bruce Davis will be, uh, he'll come up later on in the murder of the stuntman at Spawn Ranch. So he's a key player, but later on down the road. Okay. All of the girls were forced to scavenge for food to survive. Manson had watched the young runaways of the hate survive on what society threw away. These diggers, as they called themselves, were always female and were forced to not only scavenge for food in dumpsters, but also to prepare and serve the food to the men. Manson's followers often resorted to having sex with supermarket and restaurant workers in exchange for food for the family. The whole family also began having group sex around this time. Manson would give his family large doses of LSD, then preach to them for hours. Sometimes he would play his guitar, encouraging the family to sing along to his songs, and often these sessions would end with Manson orchestrating an orgy. Manson would be in complete control of these group sessions, even talking each member through what he wanted them to do and to whom. Manson had decided the family should move to Los Angeles. The hate had become too dangerous, and Manson said life would be better for the family in L.A. What he didn't tell his family was that the real reason he wanted to move to Los Angeles was to pursue his dreams of stardom. Charles Manson was looking for a wreckage reel. The family moved to Topanga Canyon and settled in a wreck of a house called the Spiral Staircase. Famous for being a community center of all sorts for the area's spiritual gurus and minor cults. The spiral staircase was a hangout for LA's rich and famous icons of counterculture. Jim Morrison, members of the Mamas and Papas, and Jay Sebring were all said to get high at the spiral staircase, and Manson was drawn by the place's starry reputation. However, 
the Manson family stayed at the spiral staircase for just two months. Manson didn't like the other gurus who represented the competition for his girl's affection and pulled away from the satanic and sex fetish elements of what went on at the spiral staircase. Manson had bad vibes about the strange people who visited and lived there. Many were into the occult. So Manson has nothing nice to say about this place. He said they're a group of multi-devil worshiping bunch of people. So if Manson's saying that they're... uh, So stealing his thunder is what I got out of that. They stole his thunder. There was definitely some of that, but also Charlie was fucking ripping LSD every night. Like this is, this is the place where he starts having a lot of his Christ-like visions Yeah, because he's just, he's fucking tripping nonstop. Like there's one point where he's like, a guy was looking at me crossways. So I made him fall down and break a lamp. And I got thirsty one time, and I made a girl bring me a glass of water with my mind. With his mind. With his mind. I want to hear the fact check on that. (laughs) Manson credits the spiral staircase house to be where the family met bad things and the atmosphere began to change. He mentions an impromptu orgy where his girls were used and he got nothing out of it. Charlie would freak if his girls put out and he didn't benefit. After the impromptu orgy, he swore that that would never happen again. He was possessive of his girls. He would get angry if he felt his loves were used. Yeah, like one of his Christ-like visions was uh, um, Jesus appeared to him or a man in a white robe appeared to him and said, Charlie, these are your loves. You must protect them. And then he did a double take at the man in the white robe, and it was himself. I'm sorry. I'm like looking at Sam, and she's like eye rolling over here. <laughs> I can't tell if it's from the sickness or from the the hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. His is loves. His loves. <clears throat> in the winter of 1967, Manson attracted a new follower. 14-year-old Diane Lake and had grown up on a commune called Hog Farm and had her parents' permission when she joined the Manson family. Diane had sex with Manson the first night the two met. This seems like a recurring thing. I know, right? Yeah, this is this is going to happen a lot. Okay, so we're just throwing it out there. Lake said that she made love to her like she never experienced before, making her feel like a woman. It was the most magical that I had ever encountered, she said. Basically, like, Charlie would fuck him, make him feel special, and then turn him out to half L.A. Cool. So, like, any common pimp. Yeah, you know, he used the pimping tactics that he learned before he went back to prison the second time. (laughs) The second time. Diane was Manson's favorite for the first year she was with him, and while he continued to have sex with all of his girls... He chose Diane most often. Most often. Most often. Yeah. Not all the time. Just most, just often. most often. Most of the time. On April 1st, 1968, Mary Bruner gave birth in a abandoned house in Topanga Canyon to Charlie's son, Valentine Michael Manson, nicknamed Pooh Bear. It's said that Charlie cut the umbilical cord with his teeth. Ew. Yeah. Oh, God. Give me some of that baby jerky. Ew. (laughs) 
I mean, he probably needed the fucking nutrients. If seriously, they've just been eating dumpster food for the last like several months. It's like umbilic- uh, umbilical cords full of protein. Do they dance around with the fucking placenta? All I can think of is uh, that scene from Freddy Got Fingered. Oh my where he god! Delivers the baby. That's oh all I can fucking god. think of right now. No. Charles Manson and the family moved to the Spawn Ranch primarily to get away from the weirdos at the spiral staircase. Uh, so before we get into the Spawn Ranch, let's listen to a song Charlie wrote about Spawn Ranch. Your home is where you're happy. It's not where you're not free. Yeah, so that's uh, our first taste of Charlie's music on this episode. Leave your whole life behind. It sounds like a recurring thing that he's like, come with me. Leave your life behind. Uh-huh. Most of his songs are like about that type of shit. They're all very personal to him, but it, they're very, very much like that. So, The Spawn Ranch was an abandoned Hollywood movie set. Located about 35 minutes away from Hollywood. The Spawn Ranch, then owned by an elderly man, George Spawn, had a mock old western town with a boardwalk filled with buildings designed to be cafes, saloons, hotels, and jails. In fact, many of the Hollywood's westerns, Bonanza, The Lone Ranger, and Zorro had been filmed. By the time the Manson family moved in, the Spawn Ranch was no longer used by Hollywood filmmakers. When Manson arrived, Spawn was almost 80 years old, lonely, and nearly blind. Spawn allowed out-of-work stuntmen and ranch hands to live on the property in return for labor and companionship. Besides an occasional TV show, George Spawn owned 50 or 60 riding horses, which he charged money for a leisurely day of horseback riding. What's really crazy about this is um, one of the kids who was at the ranch at that time, like doing these leisurely horseback riding sessions, was a young boy named Brian Cranston, who remembers Charles Manson as the crazy Charlie. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he remembers him. Mm-hmm. I wonder if he said something like really profound to nah, him. Nah, he just would like see Charlie acting fucking crazy. Just out there talking to the horses, yeah. freaking them the fuck out. <laughs> talking to the horses. That would be hilarious. They're just... <sighs> just the, like that? Yeah, just like that. The agreement between Manson and Spawn was simple. In return for a place to live, the family, especially Manson's girls, would help take care of the sprawling property and Spawn's needs. Lynette Squeaky from was assigned to Spawn's eyes and de facto wife. Yeah, basically... Squeaky Fromm would like fuck George Spawn to live in the main house while the rest of the family lived in the outlaw cabins. 
So it's amazing what running water in a toilet will uh will do for you. Yeah. Yeah. But she wasn't in, she wasn't involved with the murders. Actually, she's probably the smartest one out of the whole Yeah, group. I mean, yeah, she had to fuck an 80-year-old, but I mean, how much work can that really be? I mean, I don't know. I guess he was still getting hard before the blue pill. <laughs> how long could that possibly take? Is what my thought process would be that. Uh-uh. This <laughs> is disgusting. Uh-uh. <laughs> oh my god. The family of 13 or so women and five men plus many visitors caused little comment in the area. It was around this time that Deidre Shaw was welcomed into the family. Deidre was not forced to go through Manson's abusive initiation process from the simple reason that she had money. Deidre was the daughter of an actress, Angela Lansbury, and let the Manson family use her mother's credit card. Once Lansbury canceled the credit card, Manson also canceled Deidre's invitation to hang out with the Manson family. Oh, my God. Yeah, just said, bye, Becky. Like, fucking get out of here. You're no longer used to me. Yeah. Uh, look here. You're not that attractive, and we were just using you for your mama's money. <laughs> when you hear Charles Manson, do you think Nanny... Well, actor Al Lewis did, and he had nothing but nice things to add to the nomadic fellow's resume. As the 60s rolled on, California became a hot spot for runaways, and every week there would be about 50 kids waiting outside on Sussex trip to meet Grandpa Munster. This is how he became or came to meet Manson outside the famous Whiskey A Go Go. So, yeah, Charles Manson was babysitting for fucking Grandpa Munster, dude. There's just so many fucking strange connections with the Manson family and f- other famous well, people. I mean, like you were saying, this is in the 60s into the 70s. I mean, they didn't really have... I mean, it wasn't like... People used to leave their fuck. They would give their kids money and be like, here, go to the store and give me a pack of cigarettes and a case of beer. Then the, clerk, the store clerk would be like, read off your little notepad which your parents wrote. Lewis would go on to talk about his experiences with Manson, digressing on how he would babysit for four or five hours, brought the guitar and played. No big deal. No sweat. Suffice to say, Lewis embraced that trust everybody phenomenon of the late 60s because most people these days don't need their babysitters in front of a bar. What? Huh? Yeah, Whiskey and Go-Go was a bar in L.A. Fuck around and find out and test that assumption. I will never let somebody watch my kid from a fucking bar. Nope. Soon another famous person became involved with the Manson family around the spring of 1968. While driving home, Dennis Wilson, the drummer of the Beach Boys, picked up two of the Manson girls, Patricia and Ella Jo, were hitchhiking on the Pacific Coast Highway. Dennis wound up having to pick up those two girls a second time, and they spoke of a man, a musical and mysterious guru named Charlie, with whom they were living. Wilson dropped off the girls at his house, and when he returned, was met by Charles Manson in his own home. Yeah, he went to go record, and when he got home, fucking found Charlie and a bunch of other Manson family members in his house. Surprise! Yeah, just chilling. We here, homie. It only took one night for Charlie to convince Dennis Wilson that his talent was for real. 
Consequently, for a few months, Manson lived quietly with his group of women, making music in Dennis Wilson's home and preaching his gospel. They dropped acid. The women acted as their servant to Wilson and Manson, and though Manson spoke against materialism, the group led an expensive lifestyle, especially when a lot of them developed gonorrhea and required a $21,000 medical bill to remedy the situation. $21,000 in the 60s, dude. That's a fuck ton of money. Yeah, considering this man was fucking strumming guitar strings for fucking dimes a couple of years ago. Well, it's, it's all about who you know. <laughs> it's all about the company you keep, dude. As his followers marveled at him under the haze of LSD and the wealth of Dennis Wilson, Manson spoke of himself as a Christ-like figure and called himself Charles Willis Manson, which was spoken slowly. Sounded like Charles Will is man's son. It was because of Dennis Wilson that Charlie would meet Tex Watson. So Tex Watson is one of the most integral members of the Manson family for making the shit go dark. Like this is the, if Charlie never met Tex Watson, I don't know if the Tate LeBianca murders would have happened. Oh, wow. I, I honestly don't. After dropping out of school, Charles Tex Watson moved to Malibu, opened a wig shop with his roommate. The store was called Love Locks, and it turned out to be a disaster, closing after only a few months. To pay the rent, Watson began dealing pot full-time. Watson picked up beach boy Dennis Wilson hitchhiking, and Wilson invited him back to his mansion. Watson, if hold on a second. If you are a multi, like, thousandaire, and this is a millionaire. I mean, he might have been a millionaire. Oh, he was a millionaire. Okay. How the fuck are you hitchhiking? Uh, that's just something he liked to do. So, Dennis Wilson was kind of a, a pussy hound. He just liked to fucking party and just go on adventures and shit. All right. Uh, Charlie described him as, quite. he's quite of a rebel. Quite of a rebel. <laughs> Watson visited the house several times and ended up living there for the summer. Charlie and the family were regulars at Wilson's mansion, and with time, Watson decided to join, giving them all of his possessions. According to Watson, for years I struggled to accumulate all I could. The right car, the right clothes, the right things that would somehow complete what I thought was missing inside me. Now I gave all, everything I had to Charlie. Suddenly I felt very free. And Charlie's like, I, I appreciate it, Tex, but I have no clue what we're going to do with all these wigs. <laughs> all these wigs. <laughs> Through Wilson, Manson met other music bigwigs and producers. Terry Milcher, who rented the now infamous 10050 Celo Drive before Sharon Tate and husband Roman Polinski moved in. Terry Melcher was a producer at Columbia Records and helped produce hits like Mr. Tambourine Man by The Birds. Melcher also ran with a hip crowd dating model, model Candace Bergen and hanging out with Dennis Wilson. Oh, he comes back. Everybody knows everybody. Yeah. Uh-huh. Melcher did and however draw the line at inviting Manson or any members of his family to his home at Steeler Drive. Probably a great call. Yeah. 
Manson talked his way into jam sessions with Neil Young, the Mamas and the Papas, and others. Young recalled him being a little uptight and a little too intense. According to Young's biography, yet he and Wilson saw potential in Manson singing. Yeah, there was serious interest in Charles Manson at this time. Like, he was being produced. Like, they record... For fuck's sake, I mean, he recorded a demo at the studio and refused to be produced. Like... The producer would come in and be like setting up the mics and the girls would be doing background vocals, but they kept moving the mics and shit. And uh, at one point, like Charlie just decides he doesn't want to sing into the microphone. He's like, I don't want to I don't want to even sing into this thing. It looks phallic. It looks phallic. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Dennis and Charlie jammed together and made a few attempts at collaboration. He arranged for a recording time in Santa Monica, California studio. The recording session did not go well. Manson's runaway ego and messiah complex would not allow him to take direction from the producers. And at one point, he even pulled a knife on the head engineer. The record producer and studio engineers may not have been impressed, but Wilson himself saw something in Manson's music. And Sisuxix especially. The ones who could actually give him a record deal did not. They strung him along and joined the girls, avoiding confrontation. So, Cease to Exist is like Manson's baby. Like, that is like the song that we will come to find is the one that breaks Charlie. Dennis kept the taste as a potential source material for his own contribution to the next Beach Boys album, even allowing Manson to believe that he would receive a co-writing credit for the track. This is one of my favorite Charlie Manson, like, facts. That he got screwed over by the Beach Boys? Yes. (laughs) Yeah, this is the one that broke He got strung along by the Beach Boys. Any opportunities Dennis threw Manson's way, he squandered. It became clear to anybody with musical training that Manson could only play a few chords on his guitar and none of his songs were good enough to record. Manson and Wilson may have been friends and even musical collaborators, but by the end of the summer of 1968, the cult were beginning to outstay their welcome at Wilson's mansion. After a few months and after several costly and destructive incidents, including an incident in which Clem Grogan stole and wrecked Wilson's uninsured Ferrari, Dennis was desperate to part ways with Manson and even moved out of his own home, leaving his manager to deal with evicting the Manson family. Wow. He just threw it on his manager to, like, get rid of these people. Yeah. He's like, just, just, I'm moving out. Just get rid of them. Just, just, yeah. Yeah. Despite kicking them out, Wilson remained on a friendly terms with the family. That would change. By some reckoning, the expenses and damage to Wilson's property that had been run up by the family members exceeded $100,000. Jesus. Since no money was likely to be forthcoming from Manson, Wilson simply appropriated Manson's song, Cease to Exist, and reworked it into Never Learn Not to Love, which appeared on the Beach Boys album 20-20. Wilson took the sole writing credit. So, before we go any further, I'm going to play you guys Cease to Exist, and then we're going to listen to Never Learn Not to Love by the Beach Boys. 
pretty girl Pretty, pretty girl Cease to exist Just come and say you love me It's kind of a jam, right? Like, you know Give up your world Come on, you can't be I'm your kind Oh, your kind I can see Walk on, walk on I love you, pretty girl Alright, so now let's listen to Never Learn Not to Love straight up stolen oh 100 percent. that's not even like playing with it either it's just stolen more than that wilson had changed the lyrics to the song charles manson was furious not only had he his supposed friend apparently betrayed him but in doing so he had humiliated him in front of his worshipers people would die for less like when i said earlier that Charlie's lyrics are extremely personable, personal. <clears throat> and that the reason that he was so hard to produce is because he didn't like being told to change anything about his songs because to him, he'd been living in an echo chamber for the last several months, like almost a year. And yeah, his followers are like, oh yeah, my they're God, like, oh, just- this is the greatest shit since sliced bread. Yeah, so then anybody that's giving him, like, constructive criticism or anything, he's going to be like, uh, no, because my worshipers say that this song is great uh-huh. and amazing. Manson, who had stoked his ego on becoming a huge rock star, was incensed. On the one hand, it was another example of Hollywood entertainment complex screwing him over. On the other, it was major impediment on his rocket ride to fame and glory. His ego, his vanity, and his plans had taken big, simultaneous, hard-stop hits. Some say that Manson presented Wilson with a single bullet inscribed with his name as a warning. Oh, my God. Yeah, he, like, left it in his fucking mailbox. (laughs) He's He's like, like, and for you, Dennis, I got one bullet with your name on it. Quite literally. After Wilson's uh, manager evicted the family and decamped the Spawn Ranch, where some members had been living on and off since spring. It was around this time that Manson family added its final key members with the addition of of Leslie Van Houten and Bobby... Boussoulet. Boos, thank you. I'm just going to let you go to that one. After graduating from high school, Leslie moved in with her father and attended business college. When she was not busy studying to become a legal secretary, she was busy being a nun in a yogic spiritual sect, the Self-Realization Fellowship. Which is still around today. No way. Yeah. 
The community failed to keep her focused for long, and at the age of 18, she decided to visit a friend living in San Francisco. In the summer of 1968, Leslie met Bobby and Catherine Gypsy Cher and began traveling. Sooner after they met, Cher began telling Leslie about a man named Charles Manson, whom she described as Christ-like and having the answer to all of their questions. Three weeks later, she moved to the ranch and became one of Manson's devoted followers. Bobby drifted to the countercultural capital of the world in 1960s, San Francisco, and specifically to the Haight-Ashbury neighborhood. There he lived with alternative filmmaker Kenneth Angler, and Bobby consequently fell into the film industry. He even did, like, softcore porn. I was going to say, when you said fell into the film industry, I'm like, porn. That was immediately what I thought. His early forays into film, however, included pornography. Then Anger cast Bobby as Lucifer in his underground film, Lucifer Rising. The eeriest thing he starred in, however, was the documentary... Mondo Hollywood. Today, the subject matter seems a bit trite as the documentary follows the swell of hippies and freaks of the counterculture and their perversities like drug use and homosexuality. Alongside a pouty young Bobby in this film was none other than J.C. Bring, a celebrity stylist and future Manson family victim in the 1969 murders. Bobby described his and Charlie's relationship as something of a bromance. They would jam together with their shared love of music, full around off-roading, and camp together. They'd also share sexual experience from time to time with the same woman or women. According to Bobby himself, the Manson family was a term of establishment only after the fact. Before that, there were just a bunch of girls, a few guys, and a couple of ex-cons, a bunch of kids, and some runaways with no support from home, and they were living in a garbage dump called the Spawn Ranch. So with all the family in isolation of Spawn Ranch, Charlie began to preach a strange gospel. He convinced his followers that he was a godlike figure whose every word should be obeyed. Yeah, because at this point... Charlie is becoming unhinged. He's been rejected by the music industry. His song was stolen and bastardized. So he's just descending into paranoia and madness. And that will be reflected when we pick up with part three next week. I'm excited. I love descending into madness. This is like the... It's going to be... We're going to cover the dark part next week like yeah this was building the family yeah we're gonna cover the tate labianca murders um the murder of the stuntman all that's their trip to barker ranch out in death valley building his people without actually knowing what he's building it for at this point charlie's barely keeping the family together so because they were expecting money from this record deal that Uh never fucking happened so the family's barely holding on at this point. And we maybe all of this that we've covered so far has happened within a, a year. Yeah. Oh, wow. So all this shit has happened within a year. 
They were busy. Yeah. For some damn hippies out in the middle of the damn desert. Well, they're going to get real busy next week. <laughs> it's going to be a real busy episode. So stick around for that. All the ADHD that you can handle. All of it. <laughs> well, first of all, let's just hope that Sam feels better. She's going to she's gonna recuperate <laughs> this week and hopefully get back to reading. I'll be back in better than ever. Next week. It's so hard to be funny and not read. It, that's why. That's the reason I didn't volunteer for it. I was I like, I, I got to do Manson. I got to be in Manson mode. I can't read this whole thing in Manson voice. I would, I would no, die God, laughing. No. Could you imagine, like, the way that, like, you would read and then, like, be reading and then, like, reading in a different voice to something else? Like, a cop, like your own Manson voice. I'm, like how Rodney Alcala interviewed himself in yeah. court. He, de- That's what would he defended his he defended himself in a, I don't know. Would you do that? <laughs> it's crazy. It's fucking crazy. But yeah guys, um thank you for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoy it. Um please, like we said earlier, subscribe, go to our Instagram, interact with us, let us know what you think of the shows. Um we're gonna finish up I believe next week with Charles Manson. Uh huh. And then we're going to move on to spooky season. <gasps> spooky season. I thought about putting a fourth Manson episode in, but I decided to, since we had to take a week off, I'm just going to cram it all in. So we'll see you guys next week. Stay creepy. Bye. Bye guys.